today we're wrapping up our Overcomer series. Uh, if uh, you've been with us on this journey so far, we've talked about a lot of different subjects and we're going to wrap up today. And at the end of this service, we're going to celebrate communion together. So uh, glad that you're here for that. Looking forward to our communion time. But in this series, we have been operating under the reality that if you're a Christ follower, God sees you as an overcomer. No matter how you feel, whether you feel like one or not, when God looks at you, he sees an overcomer. And the reason for that is it's found in our theme verse that we have for this series. 1 John 4, 4 says, greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world. So if you're a Christ follower, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, when God looks at you, he sees his Holy Spirit living inside of you. And so he says, that person is an overcomer. That's a person who can, not a person who can't. That's a person who's victorious, not a person who's a victim of life's circumstances. And when you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, we have all the power that we need to overcome any obstacle that stands in our way. We have all the power we need to overcome our past, our fears, our temptations, our doubts, the pressure that our culture puts on us, and more. There is not an obstacle that you will ever face in your life that God says that obstacle is too big for you because your God is bigger. Your God is bigger than anything that you'll ever face. Any relational issue, any health issue, any financial issue, there's nothing out there that is too big because your God is bigger. So that's what we've been trying to tie ourselves back to in this series, to see ourselves the way that God does and to learn how to live that way. Now today we're going to wrap up our series by looking at an obstacle that has caused many Christ followers to walk away from their faith. It's caused many Christ followers to quit on church, to stop reading the Bible, to stop applying its truth, quit on marriages and family relationships, walk away from serving God, and ultimately, walk away from God altogether. The subject that we're going to talk about today is overcoming discouragement. The discouragement is something that affects all of us. And the reality for all of us is, is either you have been discouraged, you are discouraged, or you will be discouraged. Isn't that encouraging? Isn't that great? Let's just pray and go home. So we won't leave you there. But discouragement affects all of us. All of us get discouraged in life. And even people that we would look at and say, hey, that's like a super Christian. You know, like they've got a really tight relationship with God. They probably never get discouraged. Even people like that get discouraged, as we'll see today. Now, we're going to look at discouragement through the story of a man named Elijah. And his story can be found in the Old Testament part of the Bible, which is the part of the Bible written before the life of Jesus. And his story can be found in 1 Kings 17. So if you brought a Bible and you want to track along with us, feel free to open up to that. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible, we have Bibles at the back if you want one. We also have the words coming up on the screen. Now, we have four main characters in the part of the story that we're going to look at today of Elijah's life. First, we have Elijah. Obviously, he's our main character. And then we have King Ahab, which was a king of Israel in that time frame that we're going to look at. We have his wife, so Queen Jezebel plays a part in this story today. And then the fourth character is God. So maybe you know him. If you don't, you should, because he's pretty amazing. All right, first we have Elijah. 
He was known as a prophet of God, and prophets had this really interesting job of delivering messages on behalf of God. So if you can imagine how stressful that might have been. All right, so God would say, just to kind of put yourself in a prophet's spot, God would speak to a prophet and say, I want you to go deliver this message either to this individual person or to this group of people. And then you get to go deliver this message. Some of those messages were encouraging messages, but most of those messages were messages of reprimand or messages of confrontation where God said, listen, that person or that group of people, they're not living the way I want them to live. I want you, you to go tell them that. All right, so put yourself in a prophet's spot. All right, so when you go to work next, God's got a message for you to deliver to everybody at work. If they're not living rightly, God wants you to tell them that. How popular do you think you're going to be at work? I mean, how, how many lunches do you think you're going to eat alone? Probably all of them. Imagine if you're in high school and God said, listen, I want you to go to the high school. I want you to tell everybody there is not living rightly that they're not living rightly. You know, imagine your picture not being in the yearbook because nobody likes you, all right? It would, it's kind of a stressful job to be a prophet. Some prophets received death threats. People wanted to kill them. They hated them so much. And Elijah knew what that was like. So we've got prophet Elijah. And then we've got King Ahab. It was around 874 BC, so 874 years before the life of Jesus, King Ahab ruled over Israel for 22 years. And 1 Kings 16.30 says this about Ahab. It says, Ahab did what was evil in the Lord's sight, even more than any of the kings before him. And as though it were not enough to live like Jeroboam, and I'll tell you about Jeroboam in just a minute. He married Jezebel, the daughter of King Ethbaal of the Sidonians, and he began to worship Baal. Now, Jeroboam was an earlier king of Israel, and he had some insecurity issues. He actually created a new cult, a new religion, and he got the people of Israel, imagine this, God's specially chosen people to start worshiping golden cows, so he set up two golden cow statues and said, well, you don't have to make that long trip to worship God. You can just stop here and worship these cows. So that made God very upset with Jeroboam. Now, uh, uh, King Ahab was following in Jeroboam's footsteps, but he was doing even worse things than that. So verse 32 says, first he built a temple and an altar for Baal in Samaria, then he set up an Asherah pole. So I'll tell you about Baal and Asherah in just a minute. King Ahab did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than any of the other kings of Israel before him. So he did several things, made God very angry. First thing was, God said, I don't want you to marry anyone from another nation. So don't go intermarry with other nations, and here's the reason why. Because the, those other nations around Israel at that time would worship other gods. And what they would do in worshiping those other gods, often they would sacrifice humans to those gods. So God said, that's detestable. I don't want you to, to, to do that kind of stuff. If you marry someone like that, then your love will cause you to be sympathetic towards them and their religion and their gods and their practices. Those people would even sacrifice their own kids 
to those gods. God said, disgusting. I don't want you to have any part of that. So don't intermarry. Well, King Ahab didn't pay attention to that one. So he intermarried and he ended up marrying a Sidonian princess. He married Jezebel and the Sidonians worshiped Baal and Asherah. So Baal was known as their most powerful God. He was the guy who controlled the weather. He was the guy that controlled crop production. He was the guy that was going to protect them when they went into battle. And then Asherah was the fertility goddess. And they believed that Asherah, in their mythology, that Asherah was the mother of Baal. So they worshiped Baal and they worshiped Asherah. King Ahab married Jezebel and found himself worshiping those two gods as well. Got God's attention. God was very upset with uh, King Ahab. So he sent Elijah to go talk to King Ahab and tell him what you're doing is wrong. He wanted to get King Ahab's attention. He wanted to get his heart back in the right place. He wanted Ahab to lead the nation of Israel back to serving God. So Elijah came to King Ahab and said, hey, like what you're doing is wrong. And because of what you're doing, God is going to prove to you that he is God and Baal's a nobody. God is going to cause it to not rain until I say it's going to rain. So again, Baal's a nobody. Only God can control the weather. Well, King Ahab, as you can imagine, he didn't like what Elijah had said, so he wanted to kill him. So there was like an all out, go get Elijah and kill him order to his soldiers. And they looked everywhere for Elijah, couldn't find him. God protected him for three years. And then at three years into the journey, things had gotten pretty bad. Imagine no rain for three years. So rivers had dried up, lakes had dried up, very little water anywhere, animals were dying, people were, were in very bad condition. And at the end of that three years, God said to Elijah, okay, it's time now to go see King Ahab again. And I'm going to tell him, I'm going to prove to him that I'm going to make it rain. I'm going to prove that I'm God and I'll make it rain here in just a, just a moment. So when Elijah showed up to see King Ahab, the king said, so is it really you, you troublemaker of Israel? And Elijah replied, I've made no trouble for Israel. You and your family are the troublemakers, for you have refused to obey the commands of the Lord and have worshiped the images of Baal instead. Now bring all the people of Israel to Mount Carmel with all 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who are supported by Jezebel. So Ahab summoned all the people and the prophets to Mount Carmel. Then Elijah stood in front of them and said, how much longer will you waver, hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, then follow him. But the people were completely silent. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only prophet of the Lord who is left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Now bring two bulls, the prophets of Baal may choose whichever one they wish and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood on their altar, but without setting fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood on the altar, but not set fire to it. Then call in the name of your God, and I will call in the name of the Lord. The God who answers by setting fire to the wood is the true God. And all the people agreed." 
So Elijah sets up this contest to prove who is the real God. You know, it's one of those, are you ready to rumble kind of moments. So he grabs the microphone and says, we got in this corner, we got God. In this corner, we got Baal, who's a nobody. And we're going to see who can really prove that they are God, that they're really in control of the weather. So Elijah allowed the prophets of Baal to go first. They sacrificed a bull. They put it on the altar. They called out to Baal. And they started dancing around. They started begging Baal to respond. Hours and hours went by and nothing. So about um, several hours later, about noontime, Elijah starts making fun of them. He says, hey, why don't you shout louder? Like he's probably on a trip. He can't hear you. Maybe he's in the bathroom. So like shout louder, you guys. So they start shouting louder. And the Bible says they started cutting themselves. So it was another one of their practices to worship their God. So they would cut themselves deeply. And the Bible says that blood just flowed out of them. So here they are. Imagine 450 prophets dancing around, bleeding all over the place, begging Baal to light a fire. Okay? Nothing happened. And later that day, it was God's turn. Elijah repaired the altar that Israel used to use to worship God. He placed the bull on it. He dug a trench around the altar, and he ordered 12 huge jars of water to be poured over the the altar. Imagine how valuable water was in that moment. So 12 huge jars of water are poured over the, the bull, the wood, and the stone, and it fills up the trench below. So Elijah's saying, I'm about to prove to you beyond a shadow of a doubt. If there's any doubt that God is about to do this, I want you to know that he is the one true God. It's not possible to light this fire unless God does it. So verse 36 says, at the usual time for offering the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar and prayed. Very simple prayer. It says, oh Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all of this at your command. Oh Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, oh Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. Verse 38 says, immediately the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust. It even licked up all the water in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground and cried out, the Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord is God. So Elijah uses this momentum, okay? So he's got the people on his side here in this moment. He says, all right, so grab all of the prophets of Baal. Don't let one of them get away. He takes them down to the valley and he kills all of them in that moment. He says, listen, like you've been causing the nation of Israel to worship a false God and do detestable things. It's gotta end. And so he ended their lives in that moment. So we've got this amazing display of God's incredible power, of, of, his, of who he, he was and who he still is and his mighty power to perform the miraculous. And then shortly after that, it started to rain. Well, you can imagine that Israel was pretty excited about the rain falling and King Ahab was pretty excited about the rain falling, but he was not excited at all about what had just happened, that, that Elijah had made Baal to look like a fool. 
So he went home that night and he talked to his wife. So he got home, he probably said something like this, said, honey, I'm not sure if you were able to catch the evening news or not, but like I had a really bad day. Like it was horrible, you know, and I finally found Elijah and, you know, I was excited, you know, I was going to kill him, but like he set this whole thing up, this big contest and, uh, you know, he made Baal to look really stupid and, and God called fire down from heaven and burned up this, this altar. I mean, it was pretty amazing and now it's raining, so that's great. But you know what he did after that? He took all the prophets of Baal down to the valley and he killed them all. I mean, it was just horrible. I wish you were there. I didn't know what to do. And then we get an interesting twist in our story in verse 2, 1 Kings 19, says, so Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. May the gods also kill me if by this time tomorrow I have failed to take your life like those whom you've killed. And verse 3 baffles me. Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. So we have this bold Elijah, this bold guy who says, listen, I'm not afraid of King Ahab. I'm not afraid of his warriors. I'm not afraid of your prophets. I'm not afraid of any of you. I'll stand before God and I'll call fire down from heaven to to prove that God is the God that we should serve. I'm not afraid of anybody. And then when one queen says, I want you dead by tomorrow, he runs in fear and starts battling discouragement. As he's running away, on his journey away, he says, God, I've had enough. Would you please end my life? He begs God to kill him. He gets suicidal. And it's interesting. We got this this bold prophet who just a few days later is suicidal and wishing his life were over. See, discouragement had warped his perception of reality. That's what discouragement does for us. It causes us to forget what our God can do. It causes us to forget. It causes us to live in our little world where we can only see this obstacle standing in front of us. And there are moments we get to a spot where we just said, I I just wish I was not here anymore. Life would just be so much easier if I just weren't here. I don't know if I can handle this any longer. So Elijah began a journey, 40-day journey, to Mount Sinai. He made it to this mountain. And when he got there, he hid in the back of a cave. First Kings 19, verse nine, it says, but the Lord said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah replied, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I alone am left, and now they are trying to kill me too. And there are moments that we feel just like Elijah. There are moments where we feel like we are trying so hard to serve God, and it just doesn't seem to be working. We say things like, you know, I'm working so hard to serve God, and it just doesn't seem to be panning out. I mean, I keep doing the right thing, and I just keep, you know, getting bad consequences happen. You know, I keep trying my hardest to serve God at school or at work or at home, and I feel like I'm the only one. Everybody else is making fun of me, and they could care less if I follow God. They make fun of me for following God. I feel like I'm just all alone Sometimes we say, I feel like I'm the only one battling my type of sin. Nobody else knows what it's like to battle my sin, to be in my spot. I'm all alone. 
and we wish we weren't here. Or we, we say things like, you know, I keep trying to find the right person to be in my life, that special person, someone who, who loves God, but there's nobody out there. And again, we feel alone. So everybody has a discouraging perspective at times. You have your own. You have your own discouraging thing. You could you know, fill in the blank with whatever your discouragement is. We all know what it's like to battle discouragement because it comes to all of us, all of us. Now, what we do with discouragement when it comes determines whether or not we will overcome it or not. If we don't deal with our discouragement appropriately, it will lead to a place that God doesn't want us to be and a place ultimately that we know we don't want to be. See, discouragement leads to depression, and depression leads to isolation. And when we're depressed and we're isolated, guess what we do? We hide in caves. We go climb in the back of a cave somewhere and hide and hope nobody notices where we are. Guess what voices we listen to when we're in the back of the cave? All the wrong ones. All the voices that say, you can't do it. Why are you trying to serve God? I mean, why are you trying to even live that kind of a life? I mean, that's, that's ridiculous in today's age. Nobody else is trying to follow God. Why would you want to follow God? You're all alone. And God probably doesn't even care about you right now in this scenario. That's why you, you're feeling so alone. He's turned his back on you. So we listen to all these weird voices when we're in the back of a cave. And if we don't deal with discouragement the way God desires, again, we end up isolated and alone. And some of you might be there right now. If you were honest, maybe you would say, right now, I feel like that. Right now, I'm hiding in the back of a cave. I don't want anybody to talk to me. I just want people to leave me alone. I'm alone, and I just wish I wasn't here. But guess what happens in the back of the cave? Guess who else is with us there in those moments when we're like, just leave me alone. God's in the back of the cave as well. And watch how he talks with Elijah. In verse 11, he says, hey, Elijah, I want you to go out and stand before me in the mountain. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by, and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a sound of a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. So it's interesting when God said, Elijah, go stand at the front of the cave. He didn't. He stayed in the back of the cave until he heard the whisper of God. And God could have shouted out at him in the, in the windstorm. He could have shouted at him in the earthquake, in the blazing fire, his voice could have roared. But he chose to whisper to Elijah. And if you think about a whisper, a whisper can mean several things. It can mean, listen, I'm telling you something I don't want anybody else to hear. And that wasn't the case. There wasn't anybody else around. Or a whisper can also mean that there's a very special message that needs to be communicated to a very special person. See, a whisper can indicate an intimate relationship. When my kids were born, one of the things my wife and I loved to do with them was to whisper to them. 
You know, when they were born, they were so cute and so little, and I loved to take them and wrap them up in their blanket, and, and I called it the burrito wrap, and I just, as tight as I could get them. And, and they were all snuggled up in there, and then we would hold them, and, and we, my wife and I would whisper to them our love for them, God's plan for them. God has an amazing plan for you. One day you're gonna experience it. Jesus, God in the flesh came to die so you can live eternally. So we'd whisper to our kids and then as they would grow, we would have whisper games that kind of just meant we're telling you a special message and we want you to hear it. We want you to hear this valuable message because you are valuable. And I think that's what God was doing with Elijah. I think that's what, why he chose to whisper to him. I think that's what God does with all of us. I think God whispers to us every day his love for us, our value to him, his plan for our lives. Again, a whisper is a sign of a very close relationship. In verse 15, God told Elijah, Elijah, go back the the same way that you came and travel to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive there, anoint Hazael to be king of Aram. And then anoint Jehu, grandson of Nimshi, to be the king of Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, to replace you as my prophet. Anyone who escapes from Hazael will be killed by Jehu. And those who escape Jehu will be killed by Elisha. And Elijah, while you're there, tell Gandalf to get my ring back. So if you're familiar with Lord of the Ring, I just thought, I'm reading that going, man, that sounds like God just watched Lord of the Ring or something. Like he just threw those names in there. Wow, that was really cool. All right, sorry to distract you. So what did God say to Elijah? Well, he told Elijah, I still have more work for you to do. Like, you're not done yet. Your work isn't finished. There's more messages that I need you to deliver. There's more miracles I need you to perform. Your work isn't finished. And then in verse 18, God said, oh yeah, one more thing, Elijah. I will preserve 7,000 others in Israel who have never bowed down to Baal or kissed him. So Elijah, you know, like you're hiding in the cave. You feel like you're all alone. You're the only one serving me. That's simply not true. I have 7,000 other people who have never bowed down to Baal. You're not alone. I'm with you. And you've got 7,000 other people that are standing firm against a culture that wants to pull you away from me. So Elijah did what God asked. He went back and he he got busy being the prophet, the bold prophet of God and delivering messages on behalf of God. He anointed new kings. He appointed Elisha to be his successor. He went back and confronted King Ahab and said, King, what you're doing is wrong. So he basically went back to work doing what God had asked him to do. And here's how God ultimately rewarded Elijah. So the Bible says one day Elijah was walking down a road and a chariot of fire with fire horses showed up to take him back to heaven. So how cool would it be if you could pick your death? Okay, I'm, I'm thinking that's pretty amazing. If you could decide how you wanted to die, well, he didn't die. He had this chariot of fire show up and he just stepped on and rode back to heaven. That's how God rewarded him for overcoming his discouragement and staying true to what God had asked him to do. So I just think that would be amazing. Don't hold your breath, though. 
I'm thinking it's probably not going to happen for us, but God will reward us for overcoming discouragement and doing what God has asked us to do, pointing people to who Jesus really is. Listen to what Galatians 6, 9 says. It says, let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. So I think God says, like, listen, I know following me is a tough thing. I get it. I understand that. I know that you get weary sometimes and you, you feel like you're all alone, but that's not true. I'm with you and there are hundreds, if not thousands, if not millions of other people who still love me. You're not alone. So don't quit. Don't throw in a towel. Don't go hide in the back of a cave. There's still more work for you to do and I will reward you if you stay at it. So how do we overcome discouragement? Number one, we have to keep our eyes on God and keep our eyes off of our obstacles. All right, so in that moment for Elijah, if he would have kept his eyes on what God was doing, it, when he got that death threat, from, death threat from Jezebel, he could have instantly said, what is that? My God just called fire down from heaven. Like, you're a nobody, I'm not afraid of you. But in that moment, he got it backwards. He got his eyes off of what God could do and he got his eyes onto his obstacle. Again, he had a, a very narrow perspective. So we have to keep our eyes on God and God alone. The second thing is we have to come out of our caves. Nothing good happens in the back of a cave. Our perspective gets warped. We listen to wrong voices. We get more depressed, more isolated, so we have to come out of our caves and we have to engage the life that God has for us. Number three, we have to listen to the whispers of God. God is whispering to us. But here's what we have to do in order to hear him. We have to slow down. It's not possible to hear the whispers of God flying through life at 100 miles an hour. It's not possible. And sometimes we hide in that busyness we're so busy, we're hiding in a cave of busyness, we can't hear God speak to us. And God says, slow down, just listen to me. I've got some whispers for you and they, they're a special message for a special person. I need you to hear this. Your value to me, my plan for your life. You gotta slow down. We gotta listen to the whispers of God. The fourth thing, to overcome discouragement, we have to get back to work. God said to Elijah, your work's not done. You're not finished. And so for us, guess what? If you're not dead, you're not done, okay? And I don't see any dead people here, all right? So you have more to do. As long as you're alive, God's got a plan for you. He's got something he wants you to do at work, at school, at home. No matter where you are, God has a plan for you. So he says, get busy, Get out of the back of the cave. Get your slippers off. Get your pajamas off. It's not time to check out on life. Get your work boots back on and get back out to living the life in front of our culture that says God is the only one that you should follow. The last thing that we need to do to overcome discouragement is remember that we aren't alone. So even when we feel like we're alone, we aren't alone. We've got to remind ourselves of that. God has other people who are out there who understand what we're going through, 
There's other people at your work environment that understand what your work environment is like. They know what it's like to be in your shoes. There's other people out there and say, I can fully identify with you at school. I know what it's like to be in that difficult situation. I know what it's like to be in that marriage. I know what it's like to be in that family, that type of a family dynamic. But it's possible for you to still love God in that situation and be a a bold, shining light for him. So remember, you are not alone. So to overcome discouragement, we need to keep our eyes on what God is doing Come out of the caves that we're hiding in, listen to God's whispers, get back to work for God, and remember that we're not alone. Now, when it comes to communion, if you think about what Jesus was saying at that Last Supper, he was telling his disciples, so he gathered his closest disciples together, and he was telling them how to overcome the discouragement that they were about to face. And they didn't fully get what was about to happen. They didn't fully realize that Jesus was going to die. They didn't fully realize that they were about to go through the most discouraging thing that they could ever experience in their lives. So Jesus said in John 16, said, I have told you this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows. And we can all attest to that. Life can be hard. So Jesus said, listen, life's going to be hard, but... Take heart because I have overcome the world. So we serve a God who has overcome every obstacle that we could ever face. There's not an obstacle on planet earth that you will face in your lifetime that God has not already overcome. Not one obstacle, not one thing. You could say, well, Jesus never dealt with this. He dealt with all of them and overcome every obstacle. He overcame death, he overcame sin, he overcame the curse on humanity, and that same overcoming God says to us, you can live an overcoming life too. I, I make it available to you through relationship with my son, Jesus Christ, through tapping into the power of the Holy Spirit. So when it comes to communion, and we're about to celebrate that together, what I want us to do is tie ourselves back to the truth of our God, that he is an overcoming God, and he invites us to live overcoming lives, and it encourages us to overcome any discouragement that we might face in life. Now, here's how we celebrate communion at Epic, if you're new to us. We've got four tables set up. We have two up front here, and then we have two in the back. And in just a moment, I'm going to read about that very first communion uh, supper that Jesus had with his disciples. And then when I finish that and pray, you're going to be free to get up from your seats and to move to one of these tables. So if you're close to the back ones, go back there. If you're close to the front ones, come up here. And when you come up to the table, you'll find a tray of bread and you'll find a tray with cups of juice. I encourage you to grab one of the cups of juice and one of the pieces of bread, step to one side, and pause for a moment. You can go sit back down if you want to, or you can can stay standing, whichever is more uh, convenient for you. But in, in that moment, before you take the elements, I encourage you to pause and thank God for being your overcoming God, that we serve a God who has overcome, and thank him for empowering us to live overcoming lives. So just pause for a moment of prayer. And then go ahead and take the communion elements, eat the bread, and drink the juice. So by the end of the song that our worship team is going to guide us through, everyone should have taken the communion elements. All right, so 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it says this in verse 23, on the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, this is my body, which is given for you. 
Do this to remember me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this to remember me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray together. Lord, what a special moment for us to to gather for communion. Jesus, this meal that you celebrated with your closest followers, it was the the last meal that you were going to have with them and before your, your death, your burial, and then your resurrection. And, and Lord, communion is so symbolic and such a, a reminder to us of you being the overcoming God that you are, that you have overcome. You, through that, through your death, burial, and resurrection, you overcame death. You overcame sin. You broke the curse that was on all of us. And you offer us a life of overcoming obstacles in a personal relationship with Jesus. You say, I'm even going to make my Holy Spirit available to you to empower you to live that life every day here on this earth. So God, we really can. It, It can live overcoming lives with whatever issues that we face. Whatever relational obstacles are out there, financial struggles, health issues, no matter what the obstacle, we can overcome because greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. So Lord, as we come to communion today, there might be some folks here that are discouraged, might be some folks that are depressed, maybe isolated. Maybe if they were honest, they would say, you know, I've been hiding in the back of a cave. God, I pray through communion that you would whisper to them, whisper your love for them. And I pray that they would step out of the cave, listen to those whispers and get active in what you've called them to do, the life that you've called them to live that points people towards Jesus. During communion today, we wanna celebrate you, Jesus, our overcomer. Thanks for being an overcoming God. Thanks for inviting us to live overcoming lives. In Jesus' powerful name, we pray. Amen. You are free to come and take communion when you are ready. Seated. Isn't it amazing we have a God who for thousands and thousands of years shows up in our lives personally and then he comes himself and uh, Jesus whispers into our lives and conquers death. And so won't you trust him with your life, whatever you're at, wherever you're trying to overcome, just put your trust in Jesus and continue to lean into him uh, through whatever you're going through. Well, my name is Tim Jones, and I just have uh, several announcements before we take off today. Uh, This Saturday uh, is our gleaning event, and so it is the practice of going out and picking crops that would usually just go to waste, and so we uh, are joining with an organization that helps to arrange that, and so we're going out to Palatka to go glean uh, broccoli and citrus, and many of you have signed up. Uh, We still have openings available, and so if you are interested in doing that, this is a very family-friendly environment to be able to do that with Uh, your children 
uh, of all ages to come out and pick those uh, types of produce. And so we'd love to have you. If you would, we need you to sign up by Tuesday, the 18th, so that we can get all the communication to everyone. If you've already signed up this week, be checking your email as you will be getting directions and where everything is at as of that is coming up this Saturday. And then also on that Saturday, if you uh, would like to carpool out, uh, many people are meeting down in the Target parking lot near the Walgreens and parking there at 8 a.m. on Saturday to drive out together uh, so that they can... uh, get to know each other and do that together. And so um, after the meeting, if you, I mean, sorry, after the services, if you are a middle school or high school student or a parent of a middle school, high school student, um, Surge, our student ministry, is going to Big Stuff Camps this summer. And so there's an information meeting right after the service. If you have kids and epic kids, go ahead and grab your kids and then come on over here to the teacher's lounge just right on this side of the curtains. And there's about a 10-minute information meeting. You can find out all the information. Meet Cody and Robin, who lead uh, Surge, our student ministry and find out how to go to camp this summer as well. And then um, as we continue to reach our community, uh, God says, hey, people matter. And so he desires for us to give of our time, our talents, and our resources to do that. So if you call Epic your home, there's two ways that you can give. There's uh, giving boxes at the end of each section, and then you can also give online at theepicchurch.com. And if you are new with us today, we're so glad that you're with us. Um, If you wouldn't mind stopping by the Connection Center, if you have questions about Epic or who we are or what we're about, there's people there who would love to be able to connect with you and be able to get you the information that you might be looking for. And then today, thank you so much for being here uh, on on this Sunday, and if you uh, would stop and just get to know someone on your way out, we'd appreciate that. And uh, thank you so much for being here this Sunday. Have a great day.